Thank you, Mike, for praying and reading the Word of God for us. I'm sure for many of you it's been a full weekend. It has definitely been one for me. Thursday night we had our new Christmas Eve service, so it almost felt like Sunday. And then um, Friday was, uh, no, Thursday night was placenta flock. We had super flock. I think over 60 people gathered to uh, just, uh, fellowship and gift exchange and food. And then Friday was Christmas Eve service, and then Saturday was a full day of uh, family and seeing the team off at LAX, and here we are back together again on Sunday morning. Before we get to the message, I want to share with you one of the main highlights of the season for my family, for my wife and I. Yeah, this Christmas, uh, this Christmas, my wife and I, we received a lot of Christmas uh, cards from all over, actually, the world, uh, from Czech Republic and uh, other places, from East Coast, from Northern California. Uh, many of you sent us Christmas cards. But the best Christmas card we received this year was a handwritten one written by a nine-year-old neighbor girl of ours. Uh, her name is Eunice Ahn, and she came by two days ago, gave us a gift, and wrote us a Christmas card. Now, some of you remember Eunice Ahn. She came to our 2003 vacation Bible school. Her, our family is not a Christian background. They came. They enjoyed it. Her parents allowed us to bring them to church every Sunday. They came off the cornerstone, her and her younger brother Tim, for about eight, nine, ten months. And every Sunday they came out with us, sat in service, and they went through children's ministry. And they learned a lot. I mean, they changed so much in their time with us. On our drive home with the children, we would ask Eunice and Tim what they learned. And they would recount to us all the lessons about Christ, all the truths learned from the Bible, and we were so encouraged to just have them come and, and learn about Christ with us at Cornerstone. Well, I think it was about four, four to six months ago, um, her parents, um, for whatever reason, didn't want them to go to church with us anymore. And they couldn't go to church, go, come to Cornerstone any longer. And that day was a sad day. We woke up early and they came out and told us the news. That Sunday, our whole family, even Elizabeth, was really discouraged and then come on somewhat saddened because uh, Eunice and Tim can't worship Christ with us at Cornerstone. And we really didn't know uh, what their heart was in not coming to the church. We would see them off and on in the neighborhood and say hi. In fact, she came by a few days ago and was talking to Sarin. And Eunice was telling Sarin how she remembers all the things that she had learned at Cornerstone. Tim, we don't know about, but Eunice remembers. <laughs> she remembers uh, lessons about Christ. Well, this is her handwritten Christmas card, and this is what Eunice wrote. Dear Pastor James and Mrs. Serene, Merry Christmas and have a Happy New Year. I really miss going to Cornerstone. How are you doing? I hope I can go to Cornerstone again. Your neighbor, Eunice on. Well, my wife and I read that letter, this card, and we have to kind of, you know, hold our breath a little bit. And someone's so touched and encouraged that God had planted that seed in her heart, and she still desires to learn about Christ. And we are praying that she'll be able to come and worship with us and learn about Christ with us again. Just want to encourage all of you, especially children's ministry, all your labors in sowing these precious truths to children. Um, they are they are effectual. They are beneficial. And um, God will cause these seeds to grow. And want to encourage uh, many of you who have been asking about Eunice and Tim and how they are doing. This card lets us know that her heart is open to us. And we are praying that God would open, open her heart to himself.
very soon. Great. Well, today I um, want to close out our last Sunday of year 2004 um, by presenting to you four questions that you should be asking yourself to evaluate your life, to evaluate your ministry. Four evaluation questions. Ecclesiastes 3 says that there is a time and a season for every matter under heaven. There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up, a time to kill and a time to heal, to break down, build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, to dance, to cast away stones, to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to say goodbye. A time for love, a time for hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. There is a time for everything under heaven. There is a time for action. And there is a time for evaluation. And as we have five days left of this year, I think it's an appropriate time for us to reflect and evaluate. There's an appropriate time every day, is there not? At the end of the day, when the sun has set, for us to evaluate that day. At the end of the week, it's a good time to look back upon your week and evaluate it according to the light of Christ. End of the month. End of the year, you want to evaluate. Why? Because you don't want to come to the last day of your life and look back and realize you've been boxing the air. You've been running aimlessly. You've been climbing this ladder with all your strength, your smite, with all your intensity, and you don't want to find that at the last day of your life that, you know what? This ladder... You've been leaning against the wrong wall. I gave my full effort, but in the wrong direction. To prevent, to prevent such um, global regret, lifelong regret, it is appropriate for us to evaluate every day, every week, every month. At the very least, once a year, look back and reflect and evaluate our lives. Even in the world, Socrates said, and an unexamined life is not worth living. Someone who does not pause, who does not stop, and examine one's life, he believes is not worth living, I would venture to agree with him. So, I, w- I want to present to you four questions from John 3, 22 through 30. And have these questions marinate in our hearts and cause us to rightly evaluate this past year, so that we might rightly start the year that is to come. John three twenty two through 30 This text is somewhat overlooked because it comes after John 3.16. Everyone kind of stops at 3.16. Well, I mean, we, it's a great verse. Incredible truths are contained in John 3.16. And right, rightly so, uh, this text is sometimes, understandably so, excuse me, is overlooked and neglected. But we need to pause here because here we find the last recorded testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. His last statements are found in this passage. It is a fitting tribute to a great man. His words here is a model of humility, a model of Christian servanthood. It's a stirring model of how we are to live our lives. 
and how we are to conduct our ministries. Let us listen very carefully, not just to His words, but to the heart, to His heart, to His passion. The raw emotions that are, that are bathed in these words. Here we find the context again in John 3. Our Lord, it's His first visit to Jerusalem is over. When He was there, He had a, a, a covert visitation by Nicodemus. Nicodemus came at night to talk to Christ. And it was in that instance our Lord declared to him the, the, the imperative of being born again. That it's not enough just to be born a Jew. This ethnic righteousness, this identity as a, as a community to the Jewish nation is not enough to be accepted into God's kingdom. Nicodemus, even you, though you are of the Jewish nation, you must be born again. And then our Lord declared, or John the Baptist declared, the reason for the gift of God's salvation it is God's love in verse 16. In verse 22, our Lord and John the Baptizer are, are in separate geographical loca- locations. In verse 22, our Lord is out in the countryside of Judea. Uh, verse 23, John and his disciples are baptizing at another place. And then there's a dispute that arose. Um, this Jew comes to the disciples of John and talks to him about ritual purification. He begins to question him about baptism. Why is John baptizing with water? And then he comes to... And they cannot ask his questions. They bring this man to John the Baptist. And this man tells John, says to him, Rabbi, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, Jesus Christ... To whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing now, and everyone, all are going to him. Notice that interjection. Behold, look, see for yourself. Your crowd is thinning. The crowds aren't growing. In fact, less and less people are coming to you now. The reason is, more and more people are going to Jesus to be baptized by Him. John's disciples were worried. They did not like to see their Master take second place. They did not like to see Him abandoned while the crowds flocked out to hear and see this new teacher and to be baptized by Him. And here is John's response, verse 27. He said, The person cannot receive even one thing, unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing, unless it is given him from heaven. John knew and understood that everything he is, everything he has, and everything that he does in his life and ministry comes from God. He understood that his ministry is the ministry he received from God. His God-given ministry was to introduce the Messiah to the nation of Israel. He was the forerunner. And our Lord was the fulfillment. John was the opening act. And our Lord was the grand finale. So if the new teacher was winning more followers... It was not because Jesus was stealing these men, these people from John. No. 
it was because God was giving these people to Christ. John was more than content with all that God had given him. And for everything that he has, he says, Why are you guys griping? Why are you guys complaining? Don't you realize everything that I am, everything that I have, has been given to me from God? This is a repeated theme throughout the scriptures. Paul stated it again in 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7. through There were these people in the church at Corinth who were aligning themselves, giving loyalty after human personalities. And Paul is saying, why are you guys doing that? What is Paul? What is Apollos? Who is Peter? We are just servants. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. Romans 12.6, we have different gifts according to the grace that is given to us. Our gifts are just manifestations of the grace that God has given to us. 1 Corinthians 12.11, Paul said again, that all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determined. The Holy Spirit has given us these gifts, and He has determined it, and we are just recipients. So this is the first evaluation question. Do you give glory to God alone for everything in your life? and for everything in your ministry. Do you give God the glory as a Christian, as a father, mother, husband or wife, as a brother or a sister, as a worker at work, or even as a student when you get your grades? Do you give glory to God or glory to yourself? Whatever titles or responsibilities, roles you have in life, who is the one receiving praise? You say, I did it. I accomplished it. Praise be to me. Look at all that I have done and I am doing and will do. Or do you say, everything that I've done, I have just received from God and I have passed on to you. No one should glorify my name, even remember, not, remember my name. Because I'm just a humble recipient of all these good things. What is your answer? When someone comes to you and says, I'm encouraged by your Christian life. I'm encouraged by your ministry. Your leadership, your servanthood, your shepherding, your teaching. What, what thoughts pop into your heart and your mind? Do you give glory to God? Do you mean it when you say... I haven't done anything. Or do you receive praise and rob God of His glory by holding it to yourself? Well, not John. When his ministry was growing, he didn't grow in pride because he realized it's all from God. When his ministry was diminishing, a greater challenge didn't change. Whatever I received, I received from God. That's the first question. John goes on to say, verse 28, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. Tells them, you know, you've heard me say, you can testify that this has been my testimony from day one. I have not wavered back and forth. I have not compromised. I have not changed my position. 
From day one, when I called you, man, I told you that I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. That I am just a herald. The one who has come before. That the Messiah is still to come. You can testify that that has been my testimony from the beginning. As we look at the Gospel record, we find that to be true. That in all the Gospel record, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also the Gospel of John, that is John's clear testimony. John 1, 6 and 7. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Verse 7. He came as a witness. Marturia. From where we get the word martyr. He came to witness. Concerning, testify concerning that light. So that through him all men might believe. He came to testify. He came to verify as a witness. That Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Came to die on the cross for the sins of man. Our Lord says of him in John 5.35 that he was a lamb that was burning and was shining. And John the Baptist was burning solely for one thing. His sole passion of his life was to point everyone to Jesus Christ. His disciples have heard countless times John disavowing any notion that he used to be followed and worshipped, revered, reverenced, esteemed, praised. He said again and again, I am not the Christ. He claimed no honor for himself. He understood clearly and he lived it out that a single purpose in his life and ministry was to point men to Jesus. Not to point men to himself. So when people were following his sign and following Christ, John was not discouraged. He understood, this is why I was born. This is why I live. This is why I exist. This is my purpose in life. This leads us to our second question. Do you understand your purpose in life? Do you understand and live according to your purpose, your God-given purpose in life? Do you realize that as a Christian, your purpose is not to make yourself happy? What drives you is not your comfort. It's not your temporal happiness in this world. It is not chasing after money or possessions, chasing after a job or any kind of earthly glory to acquire things, to promote yourself. Do we understand that as Christians, ultimately our purpose in life is not to be a good husband or a good wife or good parents, to be a good worker, a good friend, or even a good minister or a pastor? Do we understand that all these things are subservient to the singular purpose to point people to Jesus Christ? We want, I want to be a good pastor. Why? So that I would make Christ look beautiful. You want to be a good husband, a good wife, not so that people will praise you, so that people would say, wow, look what God has accomplished in this person's life. You want to be a good worker among all your secular workers or non-Christian workers. Why? Because the testimony of Christ will be raised in your workplace. And they will see, look what the Bible produces. Look what the gospel creates. The power to transform so that Christ will be made beautiful in the eyes of the world. That is the ultimate purpose for everything we do in this world, in this earth. John understood that. 
and we need to understand and live, live accordingly. That our purpose here is to, is to be like John and to call others to prepare for the king. John's message is repent, for the king is coming. Our message is repent. The king is here. The king has arrived. Where is the king? He is seated in the right hand of the glory of God. He died on the cross on behalf of your sins. And you need to repent. Or if you don't, you will come back riding on a white horse with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and he will come to, to, to render judgment to separate sheep and the goats and the, to bring the sheep into the kingdom and to cast out the goats like chaff into eternal fire. That is our purpose, to plead with others, to joyfully submit to the Lord, the King, to live such radical lives that we would be noticed. We will be separate. We will be distinct. And that they will notice our Lord. That is our job. That is our purpose. To make Christ and the message of the gospel be heard throughout this world. You know, why, do, why did God allow us to live in that neighborhood? Why? So that we might use that neighborhood and the relationship that, that it, it, it gives us opportunity to present Christ to our neighbors. To share with our neighbors the message of the gospel. Why are you at that particular job? Why are you at that particular university? Why do you have your, your siblings? Why do you have such friends or relationships? Why? It is not for you. It is not for us. It is for the gospel. That is the purpose. That is the reason why God placed you in your neighborhoods in your workplaces, in your, your friendships, all for this singular purpose, for the gospel, first and foremost. Do you understand that? Do you live according to that? Can you evaluate this past week in light of this purpose? What grade would you give yourself? First question is, do you give glory to God for your life and ministry? Secondly, do you understand your purpose. And do you live according to your God-given purpose? Third question is, uh, what is your joy in life? What is your joy? This past year, what gave you the most joy? What made you the most happy? Most satisfaction? Most fulfillment? What was your happiest day or week or month of this past year? And what was the reason for that happiness? Well, what John tells us, what his joy was, his greatest delight, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the groom, who stands and hears him, the best man, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now here John employs a vivid picture of the marriage. Well, husband and wife. And, you know, a day of, of joy, of great joy for a man and woman, for the families, for all the friends and special guests that are gathered there. It is a day of joy, a day of feasting and celebration. John says, in that wedding, who am I? What's my role in this wedding? My role is the best man. Right? The best man. 
And he illustrates this in the context of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly uh, uh, uses the metaphor of marriage in his relationship with Israel. He considers himself the husband and Israel as the wife. In Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 2, I mean, all the book of Jeremiah, he talks about Israel as an unfaithful wife, as a wife who committed adultery, who abandoned her husband, and has committed despicable acts, shameful acts, not privately. And as a husband, you, your wife does this privately, that's shameful. But your wife does this publicly, where all men can see, it is the greatest humiliation, it's the most shameful thing. And this is what God akins to what Israel has done. Jeremiah 2.2, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me, you followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Verse 5, God says to Israel, what fault did you find in me that you have strayed so far from me? You have followed worthless idols that have become worthless yourselves. Jeremiah 3.8 Therefore, I give you a certificate of divorce and I send you away because of adultery. And that's what John says. That was the situation when John entered and as John comes, the nation of Israel, he heralds the announcement of the king and people are repenting. Right? prostitutes, sinners, task collectors, even hardened men like soldiers are coming to, to John and saying, how can I repent? Will you baptize me? I am, we are full of conviction of our sins. We want to turn away from our sins. How can we prepare for the Messiah? And then he sees these very same people go towards Jesus to be baptized by Him and they are following Him in droves. And John says, I'm the best man. And I'm at this wedding between Christ and His people. And He says, My joy is to behold this union. And my joy is now complete. John's task was to bring God's people and our Lord together. And when he saw that happen, thrilled his heart. He understood this wedding is not about him. But it's about the Lord being reconciled. The people of God being reconciled to the Lord. The task was not complete. He was happy to fade, to disappear in his wedding, the side door, and to have all glory go to Christ and his bride. He said, this joy is his. Joy to see people repent and be united Christ. That is the joy of all servants of Christ. And I ask you, what is your joy? What has been your joy? What has caused you most happiness? What are you seeking in life? Where are you looking for to find happiness and joy and satisfaction? As a Christian, our highest joy is seeing people repent of sin and trusting in Christ. That is our highest joy. As Christians, to see and hear people who are growing in their walk, growing in their love for our Lord as believers, that is our highest joy. That is our highest delight. My wife and I were sitting down this past week, and I was telling, asking her, 
what encourages you as you end this year? What, what makes you happy, Saran? And we shared back and forth names of people in our church who were saved this year. Names of people we've heard who are growing in their walk, who are maturing in their faith. We're so encouraged by young men who are trusting in Christ and are growing in their walk before the Lord. Because we know how rare that is for young men to follow Christ. How rare that is for young men to be wise and to be following Christ. That is our joy. We ask you, what is your joy? For John, it was this. Well, let's go to verse 30. Verse 30. This is the last sentence by John the witness. This is found only in the Gospel of John. Pastor Ryle said, It is surely one of the greatest utterances that ever fell from human lips. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Here we see John at his highest point. The valley is the place of clearest vision. As he walks down that valley of humility, here we see John at his most exalted place when he declares his must in life. What is his non-negotiable? What is one thing that John must have in his life? It is this, that he must, that I must, he said, decrease. And Jesus must increase. J.C. Ross said again, the greatest saints of God in every age of the church, the greatest saints, have always been men of John the Baptist's spirit. In gifts, knowledge, and general character, they have been often differed widely. But in one respect, they have always been alike. Great saints, great saints have always been clothed with humility, 1 Peter 5, 5. They have not sought their own honor. They have thought little of themselves. They have been ever willing to decrease. If Christ might only increase, they have sought to be nothing so that Christ might be everything. It's the first question in life, first question to ask yourself, is that in your life and ministry, do you seek to decrease? Are you decreasing? Are you dying to yourself? Are you becoming less and less and put your name there? And is Christ increasing in your life? Are you making more and more of Christ and less and less about yourself? Has that, is that the reality of this past year? Is that the reality? Are you making more of Jesus Christ? Are you dying to yourself? Is that the person that is prominent, preeminent in your life? It's not James Shin, but it's Jesus Christ. Is that your one non-negotiable? If whatever happens, this must happen. Well, final thoughts. Three closing thoughts to kind of wrap our time. You know, we see uh, the dark side of humanity here in this passage by um, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist. The first dark side is their jealousy of Christ. That in life and ministry, even sincere, even sincere, genuine believers can become jealous of Jesus Christ. 
And we see that in ministry as well, in life as well. Uh, we want people to depend upon us, to esteem us, to think highly of us. And when we hear believers, maybe we don't want them to just delight in the Word alone, delight in doctrine or theology alone, or prayer alone. We want our names mentioned, and we become maybe jealous of Christ. We want people to esteem us rather than Christ. That's a dark side of, 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 of the human heart. May it never be. It may be the case when people go towards Christ, when, when people we're serving, ministering, caring, shepherding, they pass us and they don't mention us anymore. But they mention Christ. May that thrill us. May that encourage our hearts. May it be the case that people at Cornerstone love Christ more and love Cornerstone less. That in our sharing, we share not about one another, not about church, not about events and experiences or, or activities in the church. What we mention is the Word of God, Jesus Christ. May we encourage that kind of mindset where we fall in love with Christ and follow Him, not follow man. Second dark side is comparing ministers, comparing servants of God. The idea, this word called jealousy. Pastor Ralph said again, it is insidious, very contagious, and very injurious to the cause of Christ. Nothing defiles Christianity and gives the enemies of truth the occasion to blaspheme as jealousy and finger-pointing among Christians. Is that tendency in our hearts? For us to compare leaders, compare pastors, to compare one another? And if someone is growing, if God is using someone in the church in a great way, and they're bearing fruit in their lives and ministry, these men, they were jealous rather than rejoicing, rather than being encouraged. And we hear of other ministries God is using to save many. Are we delighting in that? Are we rejoicing? Are we praying for that? Or are we being selfish? Being envious? Being arrogant? And the final one is the idea of pride in these men. They wanted to compete with Christ. They wanted these men to follow John the Baptist for their own sakes rather than follow Christ. That is pride. That's why we love John the Baptist. His words of humility. He understands that everything that he has has been given to him by God. That his sole purpose in life was not to promote himself. His sole purpose was to point others to Jesus Christ. And he understood that for himself, he must decrease and that Christ must increase in his life. Ask yourselves these questions. Let's evaluate ourselves rightly so that at the end of our lives, we would say, we ran a good race according to the rules. We fought a good fight against the right enemy and in all these things, our Lord was glorified. Let's pray.
Let's take a minute out for personal prayer. Considering a verse, considering the truth of God's word. And let's search our hearts, test our thoughts, and evaluate it according to the word of God. And let's repent on this day. And commit ourselves to the Lord. O Holy Father, God who knows all things, God who is the heart searcher, we know through Scripture that one day we will stand before you and you will test us. You will evaluate the whole of our lives. We will not stand before men. We will not stand before a council or a church. But we will stand in your presence and we will be accountable to you and we will answer you. Oh Lord, that we would not be the wicked and lazy servant who hid away what you have given to us and wasted our lives for earthly comforts. Oh Lord, that we would be the wise and diligent servants who receive what you have given to us and we multiplied it to expand your kingdom, to increase your fame, to give glory and honor to your name, Lord. May we be such servants, God. Oh Lord, that we pray that we would in all humility understand that we belong to you. That our purpose is for other men to know you. And that the Lord, that that would be our joy. That would be our hard cry and our foremost delight and satisfaction. We would put aside um, these um, cheap imitation, these uh, false joys of life and pursue the cry of our hearts, the longing that we have as believers to see the world reconciled to you and know that in that process that you would grow in our lives, that you would become preeminent and that we would die to ourselves and decrease carrying our cross, denying ourselves and that you would be the one receiving all glory for our lives. Lord, as we evaluate this year, Lord, we see your faithfulness. We thank you for words that have convicted us and challenged us, words that you've given to us. May we ponder these things deeply in our hearts so that we will live our lives according to wisdom and that you will be glorified, Lord, in 2005. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us individually, to our families, and to our church. May the example and the teachings of John the Baptist weigh heavily upon our hearts this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.